staccato handguns are trusted and approved by over 900 elite law enforcement agencies, including 65 SWAT teams. When it comes to accuracy and reliability, the choice is easy with staccato. Hey, welcome back to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, hopefully you're listening to us and maybe you're watching us on the Police One YouTube channel, and I encourage you to check it out if you're not. All right, so recruiting for law enforcement is an issue that we've been scrambling to address across the country for some time now. Our guest today has some ideas that have been put into action with some great initial results. Mr. Marvin Ben Heyman serves as the chief of staff for the Metropolitan Police Department, and in his capacity, Mr. Heyman oversees daily operations of the executive office of the chief of police and is responsible for broad agency management and implementing strategic agency objectives. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Marvin Ben Heyman. I'll call you Ben from here on out. Welcome. Thank you, Jim. It's wonderful to be here with you today. Great. So reading some of your background and and what you're doing, uh, can you tell us how long have you been working on the current recruiting strategies for the Metropolitan PD? Absolutely. So, Jim, I've been with Metropolitan Police Department for almost 15 years. uh, And throughout all of my career with the department, I've had various touch points uh, with our recruiting process. Early on, when I was hired for the agency, I actually designed a digital background system uh, to help the agency uh, process candidates that were coming in. Uh, that That's no longer being used. We've, we've leveraged more modern technology. But from there, uh, I, I actually led uh, the recruiting division as a civilian program manager, helping to restructure and to uh, get the process to be a little bit more efficient of, with our agency, going from about 18 months down to about three months, so some pretty dramatic increases. As I moved uh, throughout my career, I was responsible for oversight uh, for the recruiting division, and now recruiting division is one of one of the uh, divisions that falls under my purview as chief of staff. Uh, so I've had a lot of different touch points. Uh, recruiting is something that I interact with daily. Uh, for our agency, it's something that's a high priority and a high pressure area, and and so something that's very near and dear to my heart to make sure we get right. Yeah. So sometimes policy is about researching what you have been doing, and uh, today in today's recruiting uh, situation, uh, you've got to be able to talk to the the boots on the ground to the actual recruiters as well. I want to get to those, but um, many saw the intersection of the pandemic coupled with the George Floyd incident as being the most impacting on recruiting. How did you see that affecting the Metropolitan Police? Let me put this in a bit broader context, and then I'll get into the specifics of of your question. So uh, the Metropolitan Police Department for many years hired between 250 and 300 new recruits. And that was a pretty steady churn. MPD, one of the largest uh, police departments in the country, uh, in the mid uh, 2010s, around 2014, we were about 4,000 officers. uh, And that number had kind of ebbed and flowed slightly, but that was really the target and goal for our city uh, of uniform personnel. Uh, What we knew is in 1990 and 91, our agency had a very dramatic hiring bubble. And so flash forward, those individuals would become eligible for retire. And in fact, many uh, would pursue their retirement. So we had a retirement bubble both in the in, in the 2016-2017 era, but also now again today. Uh, that coupled with 
uh, kind of the current climate. So going into 2020, the job uh, market was good. People had a lot of different career options in DC. In the immediate DC region, there's over 35 agencies that are hiring. So it's a very competitive market. Uh, many are federal agencies. So, you know, that has different draw and pull. Some are local jurisdictions and they have different kind of packages that they offer. Uh, again, competitive in that space. Coming into 2020, we were coupled with the global pandemic, which had a profound impact uh, on our ability to hire, both from a process standpoint uh, and also from a people standpoint. Uh, pol policing being an in-person job, Monday, well, not Monday through Friday, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, uh, you couldn't really telework uh, through that option. Uh, some of those challenges really started to manifest in recruiting with the start of the pandemic. Then enter uh, uh, May of 2020, uh, with the murder of George Floyd, the very strong anti-police sentiment that was experienced in Washington, D.C., uh, coupled with uh, uh, you know a, a lot of angst around policing across this country, uh, that already on top of the pandemic, on top of the previously very strong job market, led our agency uh, uh, to a period where we, we didn't hire for about a year. So if you're continuing to lose those people that I'm talking about uh, in a steady stream, not bringing individuals in, we saw a pretty dramatic impact uh, on our force size. Today, we're just over 3330. Uh, so that is a pretty dramatic decrease in the number of officers that we, we have on our force. And we're, we're working, you know, our mayor is incredibly supportive of kind of rebuilding the strength of the Metropolitan Police Department. We're, we're actively trying to fill our ranks. But as anyone who does police recruiting knows, you, you, you can't find people that quickly. It takes time, it takes diligence, and you don't wanna just simply open the floodgates uh, because you'll pay the consequences down the road. So we saw a dramatic increase, but it wasn't just the murder of George Floyd. It was all the factors that came in that. Our agency had a further piece. And so on January 6th of 2021, uh, with the insurrection that happened at the United States Capitol, that also had a pretty dramatic impact on our agency. Many of our officers, we did. We had some pretty significant resignations and retirements coming out of that. So all these factors were really in kind of one bubble. Hmm. Yeah, in in researching a problem of any kind in an enforcement uh, operation, uh, we often use evidence based policing. Look at the data to help us come to a good. Uh, plan. And in regards to recruitment, I'm wondering what kind of data did you look at? How did that figure into your overall recruiting policy? Yeah, great question. So anyone who knows me knows that I'm a bit of a data wonk at heart. Uh, my background is in mathematics. So uh, I, I leverage uh, kind of data in all of our different processes. In fact, last night I was uh, sitting there, probably much to my uh, recruiting divisions, uh, uh, I guess, I was sitting there just studying their data and looking for trends and, and kind of patterns that would be helpful in figuring out and process gaps. So initially, when we looked at restructuring the recruiting process from that longer 18-month uh, window down to the much shorter uh, average of three-month process that we have today, it really was a data-driven approach. Uh, so we started by uh, laying out all the different process components, both the number of people that flowed through the process, but also the average amounts of time that it took for them to hit the different milestones. And, and that was very useful for us to do because we were clearly able to see some of the process gaps. I describe it as, you know, the case jacket would get prepared and then get put on the sergeant's desk. But the sergeant was on leave for two weeks. And then when the sergeant came back, they had training for a week and now three weeks for that case jacket before it moved to the next 
And what we found is there were over 40 distinct process steps that an applicant would have to get to uh, for them to be able to be successfully processed, restructuring that so that there were multiple different things that could happen at the same time and multiple different people that could advance the case at any stage in the process really helped move us forward. From a data on whole perspective, we get a lot of applicants. Uh, we get a lot of interest in the agency. We get a lot of people that we're processing through various steps. And so being able to leverage the data that we have available to look for any sort of adverse impact uh, for any groups that might uh, not fare uh, equivalently through any part of the process has allowed us to be more equitable and, and to revise some of our process practices based on the trends that we're observing. Certainly our standards have been informed. So one of the things I have a research team that works on looking at standards. And so one of the, the projects that they have underway is looking at uh, our recruiting data and our internal affairs data and seeing if there's any causal factors that prove to be true. For example, in policing, most agencies have a drug standard, but if you choose to relax that standard, are you paying any sort of consequences in internal affairs cases? And so being able to see if there's any predictive background factors that would be more or, or, or less linked to uh, kind of the success of an applicant is one of the ways that we look at data. Then looking at training data and so forth, uh, we've been able to do some interesting analysis in that space. Yeah, well, you said a lot and you hit on two really important issues that I want to follow up on. And one is the length of the process. And I think, I mean, overall, I think that's one of the biggest uh, detractors from from recruiting. And it just candidates can't afford to wait four to nine months in the process where while they're entertaining other job offers or they seek to just stay at their own uh, current job. Uh, in my agency, I, I sat through as the, the deputy chief of admin uh, sitting around the table with all the people that you just described, including our, our physician and our uh, polygrapher and our site guy and the background investigator. And the background investigator sits at the table with, you know, depending on the background of the individual, a file uh that's you know an inch thick to four inches thick and then they all propose whether or not we accept this candidate and i'm thinking we have background investigators still carrying around files with paper files and there's got to be a better way to speed up the process what you do to speed up the process uh we talk about the disjointed they take the written, then they make an appointment for a oral board and then they come back and they do a physical, it's just too many steps. What'd you do? Yeah, it, it's, uh, uh, you're giving me a little bit of PTSD as you're describing those paper <laughs> jackets. We've been entirely digital since 2015. There's no paper files of any kind uh, for our pre-employment hires. Uh, but I, I distinctly remember uh, uh, those big files sitting on my desk, just stacking up. At the end of the day, I'd review all the disqualified. And then in the morning, I'd review all the hired uh, or recommend hired cases. Uh, you know, and get paper cuts as I'm flipping through the pages on those jackets. Uh, uh, fortunately, now we're we're just scrolling, uh, uh, you know, through the computer, so that makes it a lot easier. So there there are a few things. One, technology, technology, and leveraging and investing in technology. Our agency was an early adapter. So I, I mentioned that that we built a homegrown solution uh, that actually ICP had recognized as an innovation in technology back in 2010, uh, but then uh, in 2015. 
uh, we formally procured uh, a system called ESOF by Miller Mendel, uh, which has been very, very helpful. And we remain using that system and it replaced our home built system. Uh, so technology was a piece of it. Process restructuring was another component. And so, you know, really looking at where we were inefficient, that activity that I mentioned before of kind of laying out the amount of time it took and all the different steps and who had to be involved, what we saw is a lot of time, 16 weeks, in fact, was really that initial from the time the person came in from the first time to the time they got their fingerprints, right? And so we looked at all the activities that happened, the written exam, the physical ability test, an interview and a screening, and we consolidated that to something we call a prospect day. And it's manpower intensive. We have our whole recruiting staff that comes together. We bring in some people from other areas. But in that one day, when a candidate says, I'm interested, they come in, they do their physical ability test, they do the written test, they get a screening with an investigator, they get their fingerprints and photographs, and presuming they're successful throughout all those different steps in the process, they have a very strong likelihood of moving. If they didn't lie to us, and if they don't have any un, you know, undisclosed medical conditions or medical conditions that were disclosed but need to have a doctor's assessment, uh, and assuming that their background is as they purport, they have a very strong likelihood of moving through the process. So that prospect day was really instrumental to kind of speeding up uh, that process for us. What we know is it's competitive. So if we can get an offer out, in, in, and I've seen candidates as, as few as six weeks from the time they said they're interested to the time they're sitting in our academy, and that includes all those process steps, um, th that tends to be your 21-year-old applicant who's never worked anywhere, who lives in your you know, mother's basement, right? Uh, they're going to be able to move through a little quicker than your you know, 40-year-old applicant who's worked at a bunch of different places, has a prior divorce and kind of different situations that have to be mitigated. But on average, we're still, we're still looking at three months. That's our competitive advantage in this space. And I'm continually pushing my team. In fact, I was pushing this morning in this space, not to cut corners, but to look for inefficiencies and remove those from the process. Uh, and again, it might be, so we look now at having some contract help just on the reference checks, because we know reference checks take a lot of time. So while the investigator is doing some components, we can have other people working on reference checks. So it's really a collaborative effort on a case file, changing from 10 years ago, where one investigator would have one candidate and they'd work it from start to finish. Now we have multiple people that are really working on it uh, uh, that, that really does help it make, make it move faster. Yeah, that's great to hear. And then you also mentioned uh, standards, uh, changing standards, lowering standards. We've had some great experts uh, on the show. Um, Tracy Toffiner uh, from Wisconsin is an athletic trainer who is also a consultant who goes around the country looking at their current standards and looks to help them not change or lower the standards, uh, but to make them more relevant to the real job. Uh, what's been the standard policy at MPD? What have you changed? Um, drugs are the big issue. I mean, 23 states have some version of legalized marijuana. So you have today's recruit who may have lived the last 10 or 15 years of their life uh, in a state where marijuana is legal by state standard. Um, but of course, there's the federal standard and you're right there in Washington, D.C. How'd you deal with that? Yeah, that, certainly. And, and I go to a lot of recruiting conferences and speak with folks all around the country. And, and, and drug standards is always topic du jour, uh, no matter where you go. 
So, so MPD has an interesting history in this space. Uh, we've learned a lot from the history of our agency. So 1990 and 91, uh, we hired over 1,200 officers between those two years. Standards at that point uh, largely dropped. Uh, and, and that was very problematic for our agency for many years. We entered, ended up entering into a memorandum of agreement with the Department of Justice, not a formal consent decree, but very close. Uh, based on some of the personnel practices that were happening, some of the some of the, the the issues, frankly, with how our people were conducting themselves as law enforcement officers, even in the immediate uh, years following 1990 and 91, uh, we learned a lot about having officers that were engaged in criminal conduct. So, so as we got into this this new re retiring bubble and new recruiting push. We were very mindful not to lower standards. So we still have our college education requirement that's been put in place. Our agency has not changed that. Uh, but we've been thoughtful and diligent in the space where uh, uh, changes should occur. So, for example, um, in, in the space of drug use, marijuana, a lot has changed in that space. In D.C., it's decriminalized. Uh, and so, you know, in that space, we look at prior usage uh, that you can't use within uh, 90 days of application. Uh, but then also we're a drug-free workplace. So we're ensuring that people understand that coming in. Uh, again, we've taken a very pragmatic approach to things like Adderall usage. What we saw was a lot of uh, uh, college kids uh, taking Adderall to try to study. Um, you know, they were performers in college. They otherwise didn't have drug usage. So we looked at a, a more reasonable standard there. We've maintained all of our other drug standards, uh, which we speak very publicly with candidates about. A lot of agencies hide their drug standards. We're very transparent. Any other, any other you know, uh, illegal substance, include illegal prescription drugs within five years is an automatic disqualifier. We put that out front to candidates because they're either going to do one of two things. One, they're going to respect the position of the agency and wait that amount of time to apply or to move forward, or they're going to attempt to lie and, and we'll catch that through some form or fashion. Uh, but, you know, uh, some states, and, and I've, I've worked with a couple, they have, you know, a number of usage time. If you puff marijuana this number of times and, you're, and, and those standards, uh, if you're keeping a journal of how many times you use marijuana, there, there's probably a different issue at play. Uh, so, you know, we look at just that kind of time. Uh, but then totality. So if a candidate was going into the military and then used drugs when they got out of the military, that's going to cause us some questions. Using you know, drugs, went into the military, had a good military career, now working, but no substance use, we're going to be more willing to give that candidate a chance. We Our whole philosophy is around whole person. So there's a few things that are automatic disqualifiers, but outside of that, we try to put you know, derogatory information in perspective with the totality of the candidate. Uh, again, when we look at standards changes, I think there's been a lot we've done to try to be more inclusive. And so, you know, by the time this podcast airs, or shortly thereafter, uh, we'll be announcing formally that we're, we're opening up uh, not just to U.S. citizens, but also legal permanent residents. Uh, and so that expands the population of individuals that would be eligible in our cadet program, which is essentially a 17 to 24 year old uh, 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 job training program where we pay for college education, we pay people a working salary. We've expanded the population of who's eligible uh, for that program. So we've looked at ways that we can really approach uh, being more inclusive with our hiring practice, expanding the populations that, that weren't previously reached or touched by the police department, as opposed to you know, trying to drop any standards uh, that we have.
Great. Hey, I'd like to follow up on a couple of those things you just mentioned, but first I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Choose the handgun trusted by over 900 law enforcement agencies across the country. With Staccato, you can feel confident knowing you aren't sacrificing incredible accuracy for reliability. Whether you're protecting your family at home or on duty, Staccato has your back. Military and law enforcement receive discount pricing through the Staccato Heroes Program. Visit www.staccato2011 backslash heroesprogram.com to learn more. That's staccato, S-T-A-C-C-A-T-O, 2011 backslash heroes-program.com. And we're back and I'm speaking with Chief of Staff Ben Heyman and the recruitment initiatives at Washington, D.C., Metro PD. And we just talked a little bit about the standards and changing standards. And one of the things you you mentioned about um, allowing legal permanent residents, just not U.S. citizens, um, as part of applicants uh uh, that are now permis- permit- permitted to apply for DC Metro. And it's kind of a polarizing topic. I've seen articles and read about um, the response saying, well, okay, great, let's just let them all in. And it's not that. It's not someone entering illegally. It's not someone who's been living here uh, undocumented, but it's about people in the process, people who have their green card or they're in the process of becoming citizens. Um, is, is that what you're planning to do? Yeah. In, in fact, the definition of legal permanent resident, the only way you're, you you meet that criteria is having a green card and the right to work and, and on a path for full citizenship in the country. Individuals in that category have and can serve in the U.S. military and have for many years. So it's, it's an eligible population that that we'd be remiss to not include in 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 our department. More than that, uh, uh, you know, they're members of our community. Our department is a very diverse agency, reflective of the community we serve. Over 65% of our officers come from minority background. We speak over 35 languages uh, as an agency. About 24% of our agency is women as we uh, kind of build on the path of 30 by 30 in that space. Uh, but, you know, really, I've challenged our recruiting team, you know, and, and again, going back to the question on data, when we look at different uh, populations and communities that are reflective in D.C., I challenge them to 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 be as inclusive as possible and to really find that diverse representation, you know, on our agency. And I, and I realize 18,000 law enforcement agencies, I work with cities all across the country. There's different philosophies, mentalities that are driven by local communities and, and, and frankly, for Washington DC, uh, that level of uh, diversity and inclusion is is reflective of our city's desires. And I think that's very important that the police department uh, mirrors the expectation of that community. Yeah, for sure. Hey, and I seem to recall, and tell me if I'm wrong, that Washington DC PD required residency. Is that still the case? Long, long, long time ago. Uh, so. Uh, certainly not in the last 20 years. Uh, I might be dating you a little bit here on this one, but uh, no, we don't require any sort of residency uh, and uh, with very limited exceptions, but not for our uniformed officers. Our uniformed officers uh, can uh, reside wherever they wish as long as they can get to work and make it to roll call on time. Certainly there's a lot of benefits for living in the district and we certainly encourage our officers. We have uh, Right now we have a incentive program for officers that choose to live in the district 
uh, when they start their career, an additional uh, $6,000 for rental assistance. We also have home buyer programs uh, that, that really are quite generous and helpful. And I know a good number of our officers who've purchased a home in the district with the assistance of, of uh, the various programs that are available uh, to make DC home. But Washington, D.C. is an incredibly expensive place to live, and some of our officers choose to live elsewhere, and that's perfectly fine, as long as they can make it to roll call on time in D.C. traffic. Wow, I guess I stepped into a uh, time warp with that question. Uh, uh, Deputy Chief Brian Jordan of the Metro PD, uh, at the time, uh, we were uh, Academy uh, FBI Academy um, classmates, and he gave us a tour of the department. I'm sure that was one of the things he mentioned. Absolutely. Hey, what was the feedback from your line staff, uh, Ben? Um, we did a Police One poll a year or two ago that said, uh, would you, uh, to all the respondents, would you recommend joining uh, your police agency or any police department? And only 7% dismal number, 7% of the respondents said that they would recommend a job. Um, what are you telling your line people or what are you hearing from them? Uh, you know, the best army is a volunteer army, and it'd be great to have your own people recommending and 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 suggesting that people apply. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot to unpack in that, uh, in that question. And, and certainly, you know, uh, uh, the officer experience the last three years uh, has varied. Uh, there's been really, um, you know, uh, kind of high moments and low moments uh, through that experience. I think right now we're at one of the, the more challenging times, you know, 600 and some officers less than kind of our, our, our high staffing numbers. That adds a lot of pressure uh, to the individual officers. Right now we're averaging about 500 officers equivalent of overtime uh, a year. Uh, which is a tremendous amount of pressure on the existing workforce. Uh, our, our officers are the best salespeople for our agency. They do it every day. Our recruiting efforts really come back to the men and women of the Metropolitan Police Department and the work that they do uh, in the community. And they're telling the story of who they are, what they represent, and what this agency is trying to do. Uh, that is very attractive to many candidates. Uh, you know, I, we've done some polling and surveying recently as we did a culture assessment for the agency, the police executive research form, uh, did a comprehensive assessment, top down, bottom up, side to side for two years. They had unfettered access to everything within the agency, including talking with our personnel. And, and I think they got a more nuanced piece, right? I mean, many people that are looking at policing, it's not the same as when they joined. It, it, even in 15 years, it's not the same uh, when I came into this agency. Uh, and it's not going to be the same in another 15 years. And I think, you know, our officers, as, as reluctant as policing is to change, uh, our agency also welcomes it in many ways. So I think our workforce has been uh, kind of in that, in that, Turmult. Uh, we're dealing with legislation uh, right now that that frankly makes uh, officers' jobs a lot harder, uh, and some uh, uh, kind of makes it a little bit easier for the bad guy. Uh, and that certainly weighs on officers when they're arresting and rearresting and rearresting the same person over and over and over again. Uh, it, it, you know, but I, I think our leaders within the agency help frame that perspective to officers about the value and the impact that they're making. Uh, on that moment in that scene. Uh, certainly, I don't think we have 100% satisfaction. I'm not naive to suggest that. Uh, but I, I do think certainly our officers would reflect 
a lot stronger satisfaction. When we look at ways to kind of get get that uh, uh, kind of increased, uh, you know, we just reached uh, last year a collective bargaining agreement with our union, uh, put at the table a, a good contract in place. Uh, uh, frankly, it was a, a substantial increase uh, for officers, including a base retention differential, an additional 5% for those with five years on, in addition to uh, cost of living increases, uh, netting just over 10% for a three-year contract. Uh, we're back at the table again. Uh, and so, you know, again, looking to make sure that that from a city leadership perspective, we've engaged our fraternal order of police and, and, and you know, it's never gonna be a hand-in-hand -hand relationship, but uh, there's always gonna be some give and take, but we also wanna make sure that, that the officers are supported in that process. I think the challenges come with, you know, any sort of change. Uh, we had a lot of turmoil around our discipline system. It became non-bargainable. Uh, uh, but what we've seen and what we've heard so far from our members is they view the new system that management has put in place is more fair than the old system that, that was there. And so we're looking at uh, kind of job satisfaction through multiple lenses. It's not only, you know, just what incentives can you do, but then also, you know, access to education leadership programs. We've opened up a lot of different pathways to education programs and leadership programs. We're doing tuition reimbursement, helping to repay loans. So we're we're doing a lot of different things to try to keep our workforce engaged, motivated, uh, and really all of this is is due to the support we receive here at MPD uh, from our mayor's office, which is which is very helpful. I love what you said about everyone in your agency being a recruiter, but certainly you have a dedicated cadre of recruiters, and I want to know what that process looks like. And being a data guy, are you keeping some sort of a business log of number of contacts, how many follow-ups, what matriculated into a successful recruit? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few parts to that question. Uh, actually, we, we don't have as large, large of an outreach or recruiting outreach staff as one might uh, suspect. We have two dedicated full-time outreach officers dedicated for sworn members, one for our cadets, uh, who's a professional staff member. Uh, so uh, that's a very small number. A lot of our strategy has shifted over the years uh, to meet applicants where they were. So as we looked at kind of our success ratios, uh, job fairs were netting about one out of every 1,000 candidates would end up being a successful hire. Uh, that's a lot of time spending on job uh, fair floors to get, you know, one person out of every thousand uh, that, that uh, you know, expressed interest came from that job fair. The web presence and friends and family were the largest uh, uh, kind of uh, pathway. About 80% of our applicants come either from digital platforms or through referrals from friend and family. So we doubled down in the areas we're having success. Uh, a lot of our strategy is digital advertising. Uh, our team, uh, and I have a, a, a larger team that does that type of work, uh, and they're really, you know, quite good at what they do. Uh, they do a lot of uh, kind of advertising, targeted advertising. Uh, you know, some is marketing, where we're just putting up kind of brand awareness type pieces. Some is actually very targeted, uh, you know, and so specific campaigns at locations where, you know, that campaign is anticipated to have an impact, and, and we've seen that. So I challenge the team recently to look at one of the communities from a data perspective that wasn't reflective of the diversity. So our Hispanic community uh, and our Latino community here in DC, we weren't seeing the number of applicants 
uh, come through from those communities that were representative of the community that we're serving. I challenged the team, and so it was right around 7% of our applicants where, where I'd expect it to be around 10%. The last three months, they've been closer to 15% due to their recruiting efforts. And so we're watching that very carefully in terms of kind of the success and throughput of the various different strategies. There's always value in the hand-to-hand that, you know, going in front of a classroom, having conversations with students, building those relationships. You know, we do that through our internship program. We do that through our domestic violence liaison program, our community engagement academy, various pipeline programs that we have, you know, and the staff is important, is impactful in those spaces. Uh, but a lot of our efforts, you know, people left and we got a lot of angry messages from NYPD uh, about all of our ads in the subway, subways up in New York. But uh, to be very candid with you, 25% of our applicant pool comes from New York. And that's because of the, the success we've had in advertising and frankly, our process speed to be able to move candidates uh, uh, through our agency's uh, process very quickly. You know, And so we've had benefits uh, with doing that. All of our strategies are mostly local. About 70% of our candidates come from DC, Maryland, Virginia. Uh, if you add in neighboring kind of states, New York is the next largest uh, pool, we get very few candidates, about 15% that are further than than kind of that immediate uh, uh, area. And what we know is candidates that are from the area are more likely to stay. Our outreach officers really target the local community uh, and they do, you know, efforts with the DC locals, uh, the local schools, Maryland, Virginia. Uh, but we don't do a lot of out-of-state job fair recruiting just because it, it, it doesn't net much impact. Sure. Yeah, and poaching, don't feel bad. Everybody's doing it. Oh, everybody does it. Hey, you know, respectful of your time. Thanks so much for being on the program. I want to ask you one final question, and that's about your biggest challenge, pitfalls. What would be your advice to an agency looking to revamp their recruiting process? Yeah, I, I, I think um, when you think about police recruiting, uh, it should be about going after the candidates that you really want to be in police work, to be doing the job, uh, to be tackling the difficult issues of community today. Uh, unfortunately, what we see throughout police departments all across this country, frankly, all across the world, is rather than doing intentional efforts to bring in the candidates you want, the recruiting process is really a series of cuts. You start with anyone who's interested, and then you slowly whittle out and eliminate candidates until you're left with people who didn't fail out of the written exam, who didn't fail out of the, the physical ability, who didn't fail out of the polygraph phase, the medical phase, the psychological phase. And then you assume that those are the right candidates to hire. Uh, and, and, and I think the biggest challenge is in an era where every agency is scrapping for one, two, three candidates. I mean, there, there, there have been months recently where our recruit class, which is supposed to be 25 people, we had six and five, uh, and and those numbers, you know, I would be def desperate for a seventh or an eighth person in those classes. Every single number matters. But how do you, as an agency, think about your process of really bringing the people that you need uh, into policing, the skill sets, the diversity, the different kind of mindsets? How do you bring them into, as opposed to weed people out of your process? I think that's something we're still working on getting right. I don't think we have a magic formula for that, but I think any agency that's just simply trying to perfect uh, their process of exclusion, you can do that pretty simply. Uh, the process of bringing new talent into the agency 
and really making that agency stand apart and having a process that's supportive and conducive uh, to that, that's a real challenge. Uh, I see that for our next five, 10 years as continuing to be our big challenge uh, here as well. Uh, and so Jim, thank you so much for having me on today and, and really appreciate the time just to talk with you. Yeah, great. And, and that's all great information for our listeners. And we've got some information for them in our show notes and uh, to see what you're doing and some of the great success you're having there. Thank you so much again, uh, Chief of Staff Ben Heyman, Recruitment Initiatives at Washington, D.C., Metro PD. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Jim. Have a good one. You too. All right. To our listeners, hope you enjoyed today's program. Let me know what you think. Drop me an email at policingmatters at policeone.com. And let me know what you think and what you want to hear about and who you want to hear about. All right. Take good care. Talk to you again real soon. Stay safe.